Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that told me before I went on vacation that he was changing the locks on the garage. He is the captain. I'm also the man that called the cops on you for breaking and entering, but that did me no good. So it's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Secret Stairs by Trillium Brewing Company, garage grade four and a half bottle caps out of five. Secret Stairs is a stout that is bold and balanced and unlike most stouts, it's not too syrupy, not too sweet. This fine beer was brought to us by you and these fine members of the garage crew. First up, from Chester, New York, two great people with great taste in beer and true crime podcast, obviously. A big thank you to Stephanie and Matt. And a resident of Parts Unknown, we have Kristen. She likes to listen to the show while she jogs around Parts Unknown. Next, we have Jody in Sydney, Australia, and a big cheers mates from Candy Caneher, also in Sydney, Australia. Cheers mates. And a big cheers to Deborah in Covington, Georgia. And we got a thanks for doing what we do from Paige in Huntsville, Alabama. And last but not least, a huge thank you to Candace in South Lake Tahoe, California. So thanks to everybody for helping us out with this week's beer run. If you want to help us out with next week's, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the old donate button. B-W-E-W-R-U-N, beer run. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff, do so at True Crime Garage. And Captain, I know I've said it a million times, but... I get asked every single week, so here we go one more time. Mm-hmm. Old episodes, bonus episodes are available in the iTunes store and on our store page at truecrimegarage.com. And while you're at our website, make sure you check out the blog and join in the discussion. That's enough of the business. That's right, everybody. Gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
This case begins with a teenager who goes missing. Several weeks later, in September of 1972, a body is discovered atop a cliff, high above an abandoned quarry in Springfield, New Jersey. Later, it was determined this was the body of the missing teen, Jeanette De Palma. Along with the body, it was said that cult-related items were recovered from the area. Rumors said that she had been resting on a makeshift altar in the woods. The cult-like items were rumored to have been occult symbols carved from branches and logs. The perpetrator or perpetrators of this murder are said to have left the teen's body posed with the crude symbolic artifacts surrounding the body. The only thing missing from the young girl was a gold cross that she always wore around her neck. These stories would certainly point toward a possible ritualistic murder committed by Satanists or a deadly coven of witches. Weeks after the body was found, local newspapers published articles that fueled speculation and scared the locals, with headlines like occult symbols reportedly surrounded the body and witchcraft implicated in De Palma murder. These articles told us that living inside this quiet conservative community was a group of bloodthirsty Satanists. Then, the story vanished from the local newspapers. The police stopped releasing information. Some say the police quit working the case. Some say they didn't want to work the case. Jeanette's family wanted and clearly deserved answers, but would they get any? Did police have any suspects? And if so, why hold back so much information? Information that could lead to a possible arrest and conviction. Was there a cover-up? For all we know, this could be like so many other murders that happened in communities back then, where the cops figured out pretty quickly who did it, but in the absence of reliable forensics, they simply could not build a solid case against the offender. The case went cold. Years later, the story became local folklore, and the rumors have never quieted. The murder of Jeanette De Palma is very bizarre and still unsolved. This case is not known to most outside the state of New Jersey. Could the unsolved abduction and murder of this teenage girl be the result of a police cover-up? Is Jeanette's case one of the first examples of satanic panic? Or was Jeanette one of the first victims of ritual occult murder in suburban America? This is the case of the Devil's Teeth. September 19, 1972, Springfield, New Jersey. At around 11 a.m., 44-year-old police officer Don Schrute, he is responding to a strange police call. He is on his way to the brand-new Gardens Apartment complex on Wilson Road. The strange call that came in, the apartment building superintendent had found what was reported to be a severed human arm. This was found lying in the grass near some bushes right by one of several entrances to the building. This was not Officer Don's first day on the job, and he was trying to figure out what to expect to see when arriving on the scene. Probably see an arm. Don and the other officers had responded to several calls, not only from this apartment complex, but from the same superintendent that had made this call. See, a group of teenage boys that lived in the apartments... Well, these kids suck. 
and they decided for some reason to pick on the superintendent and they always played pranks on this poor woman. Actually, one repeat prank that they seemed to enjoy was to take trash bags full of rubbish and cut the bags open, and then they would dump the trash all over the lawn, and then the lady would have to clean up their mess. Real dick noses. As he got closer to the apartments, Officer Don thought, well, you know, here we go again. This time the boys had stepped up their game, and he was going to have to give them a stern talking to because it appears this time the boys tried <laughs> wait, wait, to scare they, the poor lady to death. They stepped up their game by severing her arm or leaving something that would scare the woman into believing she right. saw a severed oh, arm. Okay. You know, he might have to use the strong arm of the law to put some fear in these boys. Maybe like a mannequin with uh, some ketchup. Mm-hmm. They need to stop picking on this woman. Well, anyway, the, the Springfield police, they've got better things to do than to continually respond to calls at this apartment building. So Officer Don, he pulled up to the building and got out of his car. He approached the building looking for the superintendent, but before he could locate her, he spotted the item that had fueled the police call. There lying in the grass was a forearm. Officer Don could immediately see this was not the arm of a mannequin like he had expected to see. Not a half arm? He saw the fingernails. He could tell that the arm had been out in the elements for quite some time. The flesh appeared to be almost leathery and kind of maroon in color. Don got out his camera and took several pictures of the find. And then he called into the station telling them, you better get some detectives out here. We have a human arm lying in the grass and it's no joke. So I'm assuming this arm didn't get there by these pranksters. Correct. Well, that's the weird thing, Captain, because that is the first thing that jumps in my mind. How did this arm get here lying in the grass near this building? Right. And I don't know that they ever truly answered this. If you look up like little short snippets about this case, they will tell you that a dog had somehow found the arm and, and brought it to this location, leaving it there in the grass. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they fully explained that uh, the police anyway in their investigation. Yeah. The issue was the lady that made the initial call that her dog was very little, like a small dog. But what they found out later was that there was a Dalmatian that was um, owned by somebody on the property and that the Dalmatian would roam this area all the time. So they kind of assumed that that's how the arm got there. Yeah, because they started knocking on doors of the tenants that lived in the building, just asking questions, what people had been doing that morning and such. And like you said, that Dalmatian was a large dog. And the one lady says... I let my dog out this morning and he just runs wild. And then I let him in whenever he's done, whenever he comes back. And so I think they kind of just put two and two together and came to this conclusion that maybe the dog had gone off into the woods or in some other location, bringing it back to the apartment complex. The other strange thing that, that occurs early on in this police call is once the detectives and some other officers get there, it's not a long time that they're there before one of the detectives spoke up and says, hey, I think this could be the arm of Jeanette De Palma, you know, which seems like a very strange thing. But Mm. we have to keep in mind, we're talking about 1972 in Springfield, New Jersey. And from my understanding, it's not a huge town. You know, there's not a ton of people that are living there. And at the time, Jeanette De Palma, she was the only missing person listed in Springfield. Right, and I'm assuming that they could tell that it was a female hand. Well, it did have the uh, the fingernail polish 
Um, but we both know that doesn't mean anything. No. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> we, we both know. Oh, we both know. We As grew if, we grew up when the goth thing came was was going crazy. Yeah. We but, had we might have had more guys with fingernail polish than girls in the high school. It was possible. In the in that old classy high school. Well, you probably had more guys wearing nail polish and college tech than the college prep program. Well, it took some time, Captain, but a search was organized. They had to call in a favor with another police department. The Springfield department was very small and had limited resources back then. They did not have a canine unit or a search dog. So they brought in an officer with a bloodhound and they had a team of about four or five officers. Some of them were actually off duty officers that had volunteered their time to help in the search. The official search started around 3 p.m. that same afternoon. Just after about 3.30 p.m., the search team entered a wooded area. This is off of Mountain View Road. They spent some time kind of, you know, getting deep into these woods. Mm -hmm. The searchers passed over a hill, crossed a creek, and then came to a quarry. Now, this area, this property actually belonged to the Howdale Construction Materials Company. And according to the officers, this area would not be accessible to any normal means of traffic. That's their word. So for clarification on what that may mean is just this simple. They would not expect hikers to be trampling through this area, mainly because of where it was located. It was when they got near this quarry area that they found what they believed to be a small top portion of the arm that was earlier located at the apartment complex. And they're assuming that the dog, again, a dog went to the woods, took the arm, took it back to the apartment complex, and so that this piece would have fell off on its journey back. And remember Officer Don that we spoke of earlier? Well, he was one of the officers that had volunteered his time that afternoon to join the search. So he, along with another officer, started up what Officer Don would later call a very steep hill. He says that it was steep enough that he had slipped several times on his way to the top. Mm -hmm. At the top of the hill, there was a flat area. It was on this spot that the two men had located a body. The body was lying face down. The flat area where the body was lying was about 12 feet around. On the body, a blue there was a blue t-shirt and tan pants, but no shoes or socks. They did find a pair of flip-flops nearby. Now, excuse me for, for saying this. I'm going to give a little warning here. It's a little gross. But animals had ate most of the flesh off of the feet and around the head of this body. According to the officers that found the body, the clothing was in so-so shape, but the body was very deteriorated. Mm -hmm. They couldn't tell if it was the body of a male or a female. And as they had anticipated, the body was missing an arm. The remaining arm was resting under the head. And the head was pretty much just a skull by this time with long, dark, matted hair. Even though they couldn't tell outright determine the gender of the body. They suspected it was a female body because of the long hair and they had found a pocketbook nearby. Well, yeah. Even though this is like the height of the hippie movement, right? Mm -hmm. Or around, well, it's in the hippie movement. There was what the officers would say, a bizarre arrangement of sticks and stones around the body. Some said that the sticks had been arranged to appear like crosses, 
that there were some stones arranged around the head in a semicircle. And according to one of the officers, it looked almost like a halo around the body's head. One of the officers told Officer Don that, in his opinion, this looks to him to be the work of witchcraft. When the detectives arrived, the they kicked all of the searchers and the officers off of the hilltop. Mm. They had to wait for the coroner to show up to officially declare the body as dead before they could remove the body. Now, the hill was so steep, Captain, that they had to use a, a fire truck uh, to remove this body. And the way that this was explained to me is that on one side, you know, you, you pretty much have a steep cliff or a steep hill. Mm-hmm. And then on one side, you have a cliff. So just a complete drop off. And what they did was they took the fire truck and they backed it up to the cliff portion and they took the ladder and they shot it up towards the top of the cliff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when you're moving a mattress, right? So going through the house. You go mm-hmm. through like the bedroom window. Right, right. That's a good explanation. I, I guess the officers just determined that the hill was too steep to, to take it down the hill. Mm-hmm. And this way would be faster and probably preserve the body the best that they could. Now, once they get the body back to, uh, to check it out, to try to find some evidence, figure out who this person is and the cause of death, it's crazy, Captain, because they weren't able to determine a cause of death. There was no cause of death determined. And while the coroner was going to continue to work on this aspect of the case, right. the detectives, they were charged with trying to figure out who this body belonged to the identification of from this the body. autopsy. Were they able to speculate anything? I mean, I know that they couldn't determine, you know, for sure. Like, this is how the person died, but sometimes they can say, well, it's possible that this person died this way. Okay. So my understanding is that the, the, the body had been deteriorated very badly Mm -hmm. and that this did not allow them to come up, to come up with a 100% conclusion of how this person would have died. Now they say that they believe that this person was strangled. Um, and they can't prove it. They can't prove it. And there was actually no like ligature marks to, to lead them to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. What my guess is, is that they have no, they don't have any obvious signs of, of a bullet wound, you know, or any signs of blunt force trauma or something that would have fractured the skull or fractured other bones. Mm -hmm. Uh, and typically you would see that with bullet holes or you would see that with stab wounds or being struck over the head. There was nothing to indicate that anything like that had happened to this person before he or she expired. Or if there was any indication of that, it possibly could have been post-mortem as well. Correct. Now, to kind of paint a picture of how badly decomposed this body was and, and how possibly long it had sat there in the woods, mm-hmm. the clothing of the person and the, the body of the person it had laid there so long that they kind of started to become one and was very sunken into the ground that the body had laid on. So, I mean, when they're seeing this situation, they're seeing this site, it's obvious to them, even from somebody with an untrained eye that we're looking at a person that's been there in out in the elements for quite some time. So as we said, the, the detectives are charged with trying to make an identification of this body. And the one detective decides, you know what? He's, he remembered what one of the other officers said. Remember the officer said, Hey, this could be the arm of Jeanette De Palma. 
Well, he remembered hearing that and he says, you know what? I'm going to start there. So, yeah, I mean, obviously she's the only person that's missing in your town or yeah. reported missing. And then furthermore, they kind of believe that they're looking at the body of a of possible female victim. Right. So this is a good starting point. So what they do is the following day, the day after the body is discovered, they have a meeting with Jeanette's dentist. Okay. Now, the way that I understand this is that the dentist, he was new to the area and he was kind of the young dentist, right? Mm. And he was working for this older dentist that had been in the area for many, many years. Skeptical. And I guess what's skeptical? Well, I'm anti-dentite. So next thing you know, you'll be saying they should have their own schools. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so I guess he said that he was Jeanette's dentist because the way that this situation that they had set up was this, that the, the older dentist, he took all of the older patients mm-hmm. and anybody that was younger and new, well, he got the new patients. So the dentist had to go over to the funeral home and do an examination on the body's dental work mm-hmm. and comparing it to records that he had brought with him regarding Jeanette De Palma and of course made a positive identification that this was in fact the missing teen that they had been looking for. She'd been missing for almost six weeks. You ever spend any time in a funeral home? Only when I'm attending a funeral. (laughs) Well, I had a friend that lived in one. Okay. And uh, we had a sixth grade dance in the (laughs) At the funeral home? (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, romantic in a creepy way. Wow. No, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Well, it was like my girl. No, I think that's what you do when you want the children to remind their parents that, hey, this is what happens when you don't vote for the school levy. No, it was just a party. It was a school dance. So we got to talk about, Captain, the devil's teeth. And uh, for those of you out there listening, you know, the title of the show was The Devil's Teeth. It wasn't wasn't just a clever name that the captain came up with. (laughs) Did you just say devil's teeth? I think I think I did. Hey, (laughs) listen to our new episode, The Devil's Teeth. But the reason why we have this is this title is because Janet De Palma, her body was found at the top of the cliff. The -hmm. cliff that they found her body at is now known to the locals as the devil's teeth. Now our story takes place in 1972, but how this spot got to be known as the devil's teeth. Well, you have to go back a bit. According to locals back in the 1920s, it was known as the devil's skull. This is because some kids found a large natural depression in the blue stone that was up there. Mm-hmm. So this is a like fairly large rock hollow. And in the spring and summer months, it would fill up with water and the kids would sit inside of this kind of like a, like a bathtub or a hot tub. The uh, hot tub. Yeah. yeah. In, in the autumn months and when it started to get cold out, the place became, you know, dreary, kind of kind of like Ohio does when the sun goes away mm-hmm. in, in November and you don't see it again for a few months. But it is said that you could often see buzzards circling above the spot because like little rodents and stuff would, would fall in there and drown in the water mm-hmm. and the, the birds would pick their bodies out of there. But during times where there would be enough time between rainfall, the rock hollow would dry out. And it would start to take on the appearance of the inside of like an inverted half skull. So the kid, the kids started calling it the devil's skull. So then years later, when the construction materials company purchased the land and started mining the area, they would dump loads of waste rock 
along the edge of the devil's skull. So the rows of this waste rock started looking like teeth, like lining the jaw of the devil's skull. Mm -hmm. So that's how it took on the name of the devil's teeth and remains, it's still called that to this day. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership 
when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers. Me mateys are our cheers. I was just admiring your little, uh, fancy coaster thing you have over there on your desk during the beer break. Yeah. It's cause, uh, there's some beautiful people that listen to the show and they like to send me some things. Well, Captain, I want to talk about victimology here because we know that Jeanette De Palma is our victim and we know that she was found September 19th, 1972. Yeah. She was last seen on August 7th, 1972. This is like six weeks before they find her body. Apparently, she was supposedly going to Gail Donahue's home. This is a girl her same age good friend of hers, Mm -hmm. somebody that she had hung out with often. Uh, Apparently, I guess Gail lived approximately eight miles away. Now, the story goes like this because there's some conflicting stories amongst people close to Jeanette on what her plans were for the last day that we know that she was possibly alive. And the one story comes from Gail Donahue herself. She says that that morning... One of the two had had phoned the other one. Either Jeanette had called her or she had called Jeanette. Right. The plan for the day was that Jeanette was supposed to come over to Gail's home because there were two boys that they were interested in, that they had made plans with, and they were going to hang out th- that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I guess that Jeanette says, I can't make it. You know, I know we said we were going to hang out, but I can't make it. My mom has some chores and things that I have to do, and I, I won't be able to, to get over there. Right. Gail says, look, you know, we've been there. Well, 
I don't know that all of us have been there, but I can recall times where you're supposed to make plans and you got two girls, two guys making plans. And if your buddy doesn't show up now, you got a weird situation, right? Because you're thinking maybe the girls won't show up or maybe they only want to hang out because he's there, whatever. Your day is kind of ruined if somebody drops off. Especially at that age. Yeah, it's an awkward time. So (laughs) Gail kind of gives Jeanette the business. Like, no, we made these plans with these guys. You should figure out a way to get over here. Right, make it happen. Jeanette, before she hangs hangs up the phone, she says, you know, I'll get over there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, talk to my mom I'll hitch a, hitchhike a ride to your place. Okay. Which the, hitchhiking was a lot more popular back then. Yes, of course. Where the stories start to vary a little bit is we have Jeanette's sister. Jeanette's sister said that on that day, Jeanette had asked her if she wanted to go with her to Gail's home. And this is, this is where I should, I should clarify. This is where the story gets a little strange. She says that she wanted to go to Tommy's home. Okay. Tommy is a boy that I guess Jeanette was interested in. And she told her sister that Tommy lived near Gail. Gail would later say that that's not, you know, that's not the case. She was coming to my home. Yes, we did know a boy named Tommy, but he was the guy I was interested in. Right. What I think we have here, Captain, is we have an older sister who ultimately does not end up going with Jeanette. And I bet you there's, I bet you both stories are probably true in some sense. We probably have an older sister that maybe really only knew part of the facts of why Jeanette was leaving or why she wanted to go where she was going. Yeah, but this happens all the time, especially with teenagers. You know, you have a situation where people's stories don't line up, but also it's like you're trying to, their perceptions are off mm-hmm. of what the truth is. It's not that they're technically lying. They just don't really remember the facts correctly. Yes. And we have, so we have the sister that was asked to walk with Jeanette. The sister ultimately turns her down. She had something else to do. We do know that Jeanette reached out to another friend asking her if she would like to walk with her to the, to Gail's home. Yeah. Well, wasn't there a report that the mom was going to drive her? That's correct. Typically her mother would drive her down to a train station. And then she would take the train to wherever she was going. Maybe it was work later that day or to a friend's house. Mm -hmm. Now, remember we said that her friend Gail Donahue's home was approximately eight miles away. So in this situation, she would need to get three miles to the train station and then make it the rest of the way to her friend's house. It's, It's the summertime. It's August 7th. She tells her mom, hey, it's nice out. I would prefer to walk. So she's got three miles to travel on foot. She's reached out to a few different people who can't go with her or don't want to make the trip with her. So she's on foot alone for these three miles. And I don't know if it matters at all, but I also heard that it wasn't a nice, pleasant conversation. It was the mom said, I'm going to drive you. And she said, "Uh, I'm 16 now. I'll just, you know, I'll hitchhike. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because of a couple of points and one that I will wait to get to later. But one point is this, though. It's pretty common when, you know, when we're talking about victimology and what kind of person was Jeanette and what kind of family did she come from? Right. It's widely reported by people that knew her and knew her family that there was a lot of kind of back and forth between 
between mom and daughter that that uh, yeah. Jeanette was kind of a tough a tough girl, and it sounds like that the Palma family was a little tough, all of them, and yeah. m- maybe hard headed would be a, a word that we could use. Um, well, I mean, I think it's safe to say. I mean, I, I don't want to assume too much, but I think when a, when a younger boy is becoming a man, the sixteen to eighteen range. He has some issues with the father mostly, mm-hmm. and when a, when a, a teenage girl is becoming a woman, she starts having issues with her mother. Well, if in fact they did argue about whether she would walk or ride to the train station, mm-hmm. that would not be their only argument that I have heard reported of that that day of the day that she went missing. Apparently, her cousin had run away from home several times. And I don't get the sense that she was running away from a home where she had like abusive parents or she was being mistreated. Right. It was more of she's a teenager and she was kind of wild and running away might be going and staying with friends for a couple of days without permission from the parents. Yeah. Well, on this day, her parents had informed her that her cousin had been gone for like a week or two, like a, like a, a longer time than, than expected. And previous from pre- previous times. Again, this is a different time, so it wasn't very. It was pretty common that at eighteen you moved out back in the seventies, and so you'd have a lot of situations where somebody would, you know, I'm I'm going to live on my own at, at sixteen or seventeen. That wasn't super uncommon. And at some point during the course of that morning, Jeanette's parents told her that her cousin had been missing for a while. And Jeanette got upset with them and kind of gave them the business because she's like, well, why did you wait so long to tell me? Yeah. So they, they could have had more than one argument that day. Regardless, she goes off on foot by herself. She's got to make the three mile hike to the train station. Now we do know that she was seen walking. Several people had seen her walking in the direction of the train station. Yeah. But that walk is going to take her about 45 minutes. Yeah, and she's last seen not terribly far from her home where she's crossing an intersection. This is widely considered the last sighting of Jeanette De Palma on the day that she went missing. Now, let's talk about the De Palma family. I've been told that this is an upper middle class area, the neighborhood that she was lived in and the neighborhood that she was last seen in. Regarding her family, A lot of the people have referred to the family as quote unquote weird. And Mm. that would make you think that there would be something very strange with this family. I don't know that I found a lot strange with, with what they, their accounts of why this family was weird. What do they mean by weird? So this was a small community, right? Mm -hmm. And these, the De Palmas were not very social. They rarely went out. They didn't go out a lot. The adults didn't, the mother and father. Mm-hmm. And when they did go out, they were not social to the other people in the community. This regarding, you know, when you take into account the time period and the small community that they lived in, this was considered to be strange. Mm-hmm. There was the other th- consideration that there were mafia rumors that maybe the father was in the mafia. This was an Italian family, a large Italian family. I believe they had seven or eight children Yeah, and they seemed to have some money. And so I think some people in the, in the well, neighborhood and in the town thought that they were involved in the mafia. Well, they had a little bit of money because they weren't going out all the time. <laughs> there you go. So, and, and look, there's a difference between, you know, maybe they were quiet. Some people 
assume all oh, this person's quiet, so they're rude. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd like to know if there was, a, you know, or were they outwardly just rude to people? There were a few police officers, now retired, obviously, mm-hmm. that state that they had responded to the home several times on police calls. For what? Well, it, I guess they don't really know. The police don't really know because every time they would arrive, they would get the same story that there was a problem. Now there is no problem. We're all fine here. Mm-hmm. They believe that there was probably some yelling and fighting between the parents. And at times, maybe one of the parents would call or one of the children would call the police. And then whatever issue had warranted the call was resolved by the time the police would arrive. But we do have several police officers stating that they believe and recall that happening several times. Now, regarding our victim, Jeanette De Palma, what kind of kid was she? What kind of girl was she? That is... It's That's like, the debate. Yes, it's all over the shop. You've, you've read these things, too. It's mm-hmm. like, depending on who you talk to, you get one completely different version of somebody else you know somebody else's account and if you take all the different versions of who she was we could literally talk about that for maybe four or five hours it's that debatable all right well let's start (laughs) no let's not because i found that portion of when i was looking into this case i found that portion to be quite boring and i felt that it was quite really because i I actually thought it was interesting well the thing for me was i didn't think it helped me understand the case any better maybe that's why i thought it was boring but i found that it was interesting that you know one person would be like oh she was a real wild girl you know she was always she was always you know hanging out with the greasers and doing drugs and and Mm. she was a fast girl she spent a lot of time with a lot of different boys yeah, there was rumors. Um, a lot of cops were saying that you could find her at like Lover's Lane and stuff like that. She would always be in somebody's car. And then you have other people that other girls or boys her age that would say the complete opposite. They were like, well, she might have smoked a cigarette every now and then, maybe even some weed once in a while, but I wouldn't consider her to be wild. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know her to do anything more than first base. You know, maybe she liked to kiss some boys, but nothing you know that was out of the ordinary for her time you know for her age right she's 16 years old that's what everybody's doing what most of the kids are doing at that age and then you have other people that are saying that she was very religious and that she had a boy or two that she was interested in and when she was interested in a boy she didn't look at other boys she didn't chase other boys or talk to them that she was pretty conservative so it's mm-hmm. really all over the shop at the end of the day and it makes it hard to kind of nail down what type of person she is. Well, and there's, again, there's, then there becomes rumors of that she's heavily involved in church. And there's a lot of stuff from her family coming out and saying she was very involved in church. And then other people saying that she was possibly involved in witchcraft. Yeah. And one thing I found, Captain, that when, uh, years later, when people would go back and try to investigate this case, is I found that what a lot of people were reporting regarding her character, Jeanette's character and her actions, it seemed to me they were reporting things that they had heard or things that they had heard other people say, or my parents told me this, or my sister told me that. Here's what I wonder. You know, we mentioned during the trailer that this case has almost become folklore at some point. 
And I think that very quickly in this case, when you have a 16 year old girl that goes missing and she's missing for six weeks and then later found dead in the woods, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, sometimes, and, and I don't care for this one bit, but sometimes parents and priests and police officers and teachers and principals, aunts and uncles, anybody in the, the form of authority figure to teenagers, they kind of use this as a teaching moment where they're like, and they, they misconstrue the truth. They, they stretch the truth quite a bit sometimes when they choose to take this on as a teaching moment mm-hmm. and they'll throw things in like she was a wild girl. You know, she was always in the back seats of uh, cars with, with boys hanging out in lover lanes. This is and, what happens to you when and they, you give hand jobs. Yeah. And they don't really outwardly say that, but they imply like this happened because she was this way mm-hmm. or she was, she was way into drugs and look where it got her. Yeah. Reefer madness, man. Yeah. And where really, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe you can use that as a teaching moment. I don't think you can when, when you don't have a cause of death and you have a person who is a victim at this point, we don't have anything to point us in the direction to lead us to believe that, that she had anything to do with her demise. Well, it's a lot of rumor and a lot of hearsay. Yeah. And one thing that does not seem to be rumor or hearsay. Remember we have her telling her friend that she would just hitchhike a ride over to her house. Yeah. Well, it seems to be that that was a general consensus amongst her friends was that, that Jeanette was not opposed to hitching a ride. Mm -hmm. There were several of these friends though, however, that said she would not get into a car unless she would know the driver. And apparently I get, but that sounds silly. It's like, it's one or the other, right? You're just going to hitchhike and it's, you only get in the car when you're hitchhiking. If you know the person, I, I get what you're saying. I wonder if, you know, if she would recognize, uh, girl and guys her age or a little bit older well they would have to be a little a little bit older because apparently back then you had to be 17 and a half in new jersey to get a license at that time right so when she's 16 she's trying to get around on her own my speculation is what they mean by that is that she would recognize a friend's car from high school and then stick the old thumb out Mm -hmm. or wave them down you know hey tommy hey julie whatever i'm heading over here you live near them. Would you mind giving me a ride kind of thing? Yeah, but this kind of stuff in cases drives me nuts because maybe that's not the type of person she was just getting in a car with a stranger. But all it takes is one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe she got desperate. Right. And didn't want to make, I mean, eight miles is a is a stretch. Right. So after walking for 45 minutes, maybe you went, uh, I don't really know this guy, but he seems safe. Mm-hmm. Or he's, he's looks like somebody I might go to high school with, or mm-hmm. he looks like he's only 18 years old. Well, here's one rumor that I do want to talk about though. Cause this one seems to stand out amongst the others for me, captain. And this is something that didn't really, I think this was a rumor that was swirling about amongst the people that knew Jeanette and amongst the people at her high school, mm-hmm. but it wasn't something that was kind of widely known until a couple years after her death. And this was a rumor of a party the night that Jeanette had disappeared. And this party was taking place at her friend's house, Donna Blattis. Now, her friend Donna Blattis and her brothers apparently were throwing a party that evening. The rumor is that Jeanette showed up to this party. And at some point, you know, there were drugs and drinking and things like that going on at this party. 
at some point that she had overdosed on an unnamed drug and one of the Blattis brothers or all of them kind of panicked and people that were at that party took her body off into the woods off of Mount View Road and dumped her there. Mm -hmm. I guess this, this seems to be the belief that is also held by some of the members of the De Palma family. And some people dispute this because they say, well, the drugs that would be the unnamed drugs, right, mm-hmm. would be like LSD and that you can't OD from LSD. Okay. And I'm not an LSD expert, so I, I don't know if that's possible <laughs> or not. I thought I was working with an LSD expert. Uh, no, but I would, I would also assume, you know, because one of the other rumors is that maybe that she left this party and she went wandering and she just collapsed or whatever in this, in the woods, right? Is that possible if you're high on LSD? Well, you have the situation where there is no visible signs of cause of death uh, for this individual. So that, that would lead some, you know, lend some credence to what they're saying here. But so the, the people of the De Palma family that seem to believe this is we have Cindy, her sister. We've mentioned her sister before, but not by name. The youngest one and girls. And according to Cindy, her mother believed this too. And the reason why they believe this rumor that they heard was they recall not having seen Donna Blattis and her brothers at the funeral. Mm. You know, this was a, this was a wake and a funeral that was attended by hundreds of people uh, people that that Jeanette knew and the De Palma family knew, and they don't recall seeing them at the funeral. When you have that many people, you might have missed somebody. You might have missed a face in the crowd. Yeah, It's also possible that they didn't go for whatever reason. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much it points towards guilt. It might seem strange, though. I can I can get on board with that, that it might seem strange. But we have a friend of of Jeanette's, and she was somebody that was very close to Donna Blattis. Mm-hmm. And she disputes this. She says that, you know, this rumor might have some, it might have some truth to it. But according to this friend, and her name is Denise Parker, she gives a slightly different story. She says that there was no party at Donna's house that night. That's just a bad rumor. She states that there were always kids. There were always kids hanging out at Donna's house 24-7. It was a hangout, right. you know. Uh, but had there been a party, she would have been aware of it. And she also stated that that was not a party house. It was just a place where you would you would see a couple kids hanging out from time to time. Right, but there, again, it's not a party house. It's just kids hanging out. But is it possible that why these kids were hanging out Parents leave for a little bit and they decide to do some experimenting with some drugs and some things happen. Well, so, but Denise would go on to further say that she did hear a rumor that Jeanette was at Donna's house that night. She's the same woman saying that there's, there was no party that night. She's saying, however, that Jeanette had stopped by there on her trip walking, that she had stopped by Donna's and was looking for a ride to get to her friend's house. Right. And she, when she gets there, she finds out that Donna was actually grounded and could not drive her over to Gail's home. Mm -hmm. And from there, the rumor she heard was Jeanette had just had to leave on foot because her friend was unable to drive her there. Yeah. Didn't I I also heard that maybe she asked the mother, like the girl was grounded, 
But then she was like, well, let me ask your mother. Oh, okay. Like she was, <laughs> she was really into uh, finding a ride. But either way, I think that backs up the story that she was at least there. And maybe, you know, again, quote unquote, there wasn't a party. And if that version, yeah, that version that you had heard, there would have been no, no party, I would assume. Now, what do the investigators think? When retired investigators and police were, were presented with these rumors regarding the party, there's a man by the name of Ed Kitch. Now, Ed was the juvenile officer back then, and he was a juvenile officer for over 20 years in the area. Can't believe they let kids do that. <laughs> let them take the job. Uh, Ed believes that the Bladdis theory is the one that holds the most truth the Bladdis night and the pips out of all the theories that he's heard over the years and rumors he believes this one holds the most truth he he would go on to say that he's 90 percent sure that something happened to Jeanette in the Bladdis home that night and that Mark Bladdis this is one of the uh, brothers uh, was rumored to have been involved and he he believes that that's where the truth in this case lies all right so in your personal opinion do you think a group of teenagers could hold on to a, a story like this? And I mean, keep, I've seen, I know what you did last summer. Yeah, and then you have to wonder, not only are they holding on to a lie, you're talking about keeping it quiet and holding on to a lie for four decades, over four decades. Mm -hmm. But if it's family members, then it'd be easier to do. I tend to, when, when, when we look at a lot of cases... And the first thing that I look at when I'm when I'm looking at a case is was this committed by an individual or committed by multiple people, a group of people? That's interesting. I start with Wikipedia. <laughs> and the thing here is with especially with these older cases, that's usually the assumption that I make that it's probably an individual rather than a group of people mm -hmm. because it is often hard to keep a group quiet. There's usually one person that will come out at some point and say, Hey, this is what happened. Or I know something, um, you know, we have drunken confessions that we've heard of on the show and reported about. We've had deathbed confessions that we've reported about. Mm -hmm. Uh, so often I find that this is not the case that it, that it would be very tough for a group of people to keep this quiet now, but keep, keep this in mind. We're talking about, did a group of people actually keep this quiet? Because there's rumors out there that this is what in fact happened. Right. So where it, it, it's it's now boils down to how can you trace these rumors back? What is the root of these rumors? And do they stem from somebody that was at that house that night? Right. That night so, that saw Janet. Janet. So what you're saying is, is it speculation? And that's how we got to this point. And we know that she was at this house and we know that kids hung out at this house. So is that where it's coming from? And it's just per pure speculation or did somebody say something and because of that the rumor mill started up and i don't want to upset anybody because you know when i make this statement i thought about this last night when i was thinking about this case and i was like do i say this because i'm afraid that people are going to be like well then it, everything you just said is hogwash no but i think this should be taken <laughs> into i have to say it captain because everything i think you have to take it with a grain of salt because That's this yeah. case almost reminds me of the serial case of Adnan Saeed and, and uh, Heyman Lee. We're talking about a girl that disappeared. She's not found until weeks yeah. later. Yeah. And then I think we have, we have teenagers that are being questioned. They're like, when did you see her last? Did you see her on this night? And I mm -hmm. think they start wondering, well, yeah, I saw her. 
Yeah, I saw her on, uh, what was that, a Tuesday? No, it was a Monday. Oh, okay, well, maybe it was a Monday. Yeah, I saw her. Mm -hmm. Maybe you didn't. You get into a point where you start to wonder the... I'm not, I don't want to call these people liars. If somebody believes something, they're not liars. They're just misremembering, right, right. misremembering. They, they don't have the date. It was, it should have been a normal day. It should have been an ordinary day. There was no reason to remember if that was the last time you would see this person or not. Yeah. So I see the similarities. I mean, we have similar ages. We have somebody going missing for a, a period of time and then their body was found. But a difference here is Heyman Lee was, um, reported missing mm-hmm. where Jeanette was reported as a runaway. Yeah. So l- I said we would get to this later and, and this is where we need to get to that. Right. So her parents reported her missing the same night uh, that we had already discussed. Her parents are Salvatore and Florence De Palma. Now keep in mind, Jeanette was scheduled to work that evening, or at least she told her parents that she had to work that evening. So she was going to go to work after going to her friend's house. She never returns home that night. Her mother starts making calls to Jeanette's friends mm. and to their parents as well. Nobody seems to know anything. She didn't arrive at her friend's home. Not only did they not know anything, in fact, no one had anything to report to them. You know, having heard from her or plans changing, anything like that. There was nothing to report. Now, when they called the police to report their daughter missing. The police gave her the old, same old troubling story that we've heard a hundred times when we talk about these older cases. You know, we've seen this a lot. They, they get the old, she needs to be gone for 24 hours before she can be reported missing. Mm -hmm. According to the police, it was the De Palma's, the, the family themselves that reported Jeanette as a runaway. Right. And that might've been, they could have been assuming because of her cousin. Because of the cousin. And remember, you and I had talked that there was probably at least two arguments that took place that day between her and one of her parents before right. leaving the house. The thing here, though, Captain, where this gets real screwy is, you know, back then police would not really. This isn't something that you investigated when somebody's reported missing. It's investigated when somebody's reported as a runaway. You might look around for the person you put out, a, you know, you, you, you alert the officers that this person is, uh, has left their home right. and that the parents are looking for this home. And if somebody matching the description, go up and talk to them, but they don't really do any work when somebody's reported as a runaway because they're under the belief that this person left of their own will, that they wanted to leave the home. And in most of these cases, when that does happen, the mm-hmm. teenager returns after a couple of days. The thing here, Captain, I wonder about, you know, when when a girl is reported, let's say she was reported missing. Let's say she was reported as a runaway. Let's 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 take that aside. But she's reported as not being where she's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then six weeks later, she's found dead out in the middle of the woods somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you come back as an investigation and you say, well, we can't come up with a cause of death, but we're going to rule it a suspicious death or a homicide because she was found somewhere that she should not have been, that we don't expect her to have gone on her own. So therefore we're going to, we're going to investigate it as a homicide. So now your department has declared this a homicide. The problem you have here is 
if when you took the missing persons report, you decided or officers amongst your group decided she's not missing, she's a runaway, and then you find her dead out in the middle of the woods, well, then there's a problem with the department. There's a problem with somebody in the department, one of the detectives or one of the cops, because the public wants to know, well, why did you call her a runaway? It's very likely she did not run away if she was found murdered somewhere. Right. So here's my big question. My big question is that later the police stating they, the family reported her as a runaway. This wasn't our problem. This was not our doing. Nothing that we did wrong. Was the, it to cover their ass? Right. To cover their butts. The problem I have with the family, let's say the family did report her as a runaway. Mm -hmm. I understand that, yes, there was an argument or two. And I understand that maybe because her cousin had taken off, you thought maybe she was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple problems with these stories. One is if the cousin had been gone long enough that the family, not only the immediate family, but the extended family were growing concerned because she was gone a lot longer than typically she would be gone mm -hmm. to the point where you tell your daughter that starts an argument with you that morning because she's mad you waited so long to tell her, wouldn't you have enough concern of the cousin of your niece that your daughter all of a sudden missing would, wouldn't she fall into that same concerned department for you? Like naturally for me, it would. The second part that I have an issue with is if your daughter ran away, she didn't take anything with her mm -hmm. and you had 24 hours to figure that out. I would be a little, if, if my daughter or son, which I don't have, they don't exist. Right. But if, if one of them existed and <laughs> left, you know, said, say they took off and they were gone. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the police tell me I can't report this for 24 hours. I'm going to do a little investigating on my own. And one thing I'm going to first look at is, did they take anything with them? You know, it, a kid, a 16 year old kid that packs up a backpack full of items is a lot different than somebody that just leaves walking on foot with nothing. Mm -hmm. Did you ever try to run away when you were a kid? Not like a real runaway, you know, like the mm -hmm. silly, like maybe rode my bike too far and stayed gone a little, you know, like hours longer than I was supposed to, but not overnight. I don't think I ever made it. Yeah, but that's not running away. You just stayed out later, but no, 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 no. But I think, I, I think my intent at one point was like, like, yeah. like uh, that's it. I'm out of here. And then it's like three hours later, you get hungry and it gets dark and you're like, okay, well I'm going back. I was in kindergarten and I had this duffel bag. And I remember thinking I'm going to run away. And, uh, so I, I put the duffel bag and it, there's no like strap. Right. Mm -hmm. So I put the, the handles around my neck. Right. And I have this duffel bag filled you weren't going to make it very far no so i got to the like the end of the court and i couldn't breathe <laughs> <laughs> see so. this is a teaching moment this is what you get for running away this, this is what you this get is a strong teaching moment here my my mom looked at me and said this is what you get for giving hand jobs <laughs> all right well captain i think what we've brought up here is that there's a lot of questions about her friends and certainly questions about her own lifestyle and character but where I think that we need to hone in on and talk about when we start off the next episode, there's some questions about this family and about the parents as well. What, what truly happened to Jeanette De Palma? And we never even got to the aspect of possible Satanism or witchcraft being involved in this murder. And that is a huge topic in this case. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for sharing on social media. Until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't litter. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.